thanks for taking the time to download this BBC Radio 5 Live podcast. To search for other podcasts you might like, click bbc.co.uk slash 5 Live, where you'll also find our terms of use. What's up, what's up, what's up, my brother from another mother? Pardon? That's the new add-on, by the way. Why are you wearing a scarf indoors? It's very, very warm outside, and you're wearing a scarf. It's, no, it's more no of a safety blanket, really. Is that right? You remember in that thing in um, Snoopy and Charlie Brown? Is it who is? It's not Pigpen. Who's the one who they can't take the blanket off? Is it Linus? Sounds about right. The one that they and there's a there is a there's a brilliant strip in which they have they have to wash the blanket because it hasn't been washed for ages, and they sort of sneak up on him and they grab it. Off him, and then it's just a series of. So there's no speech in which it goes into the pre-wash, and then it goes into the wash, and then it goes, in the, and all the time he just becomes more and more sort of like he's falling apart. And then finally, it comes out of the thing, and they give it back to him, and he's happy. I quite like a security blanket. Well, that's what that is. No, well, that's a scarf. I don't want your scarf because that's yours. I can see the attraction. Though. No, I'm not offering you my scarf. This is mine. This is a present from my nearest and dearest. So that's why. Look, he has my initials on it in case I forget who I am. <laughs> I'm very. That's very, very impressive. It, is, that it makes you sound like a president. Vote for MJK. <laughs> when I say vote, I didn't mean in any way. <clears throat> this from um, <laughs> didn't mean <laughs> Katrina has been in touch. Uh, now I, I'm just going to emphasize the age thing again because we mentioned this last week. Mm-hmm. Katrina's eleven. Oh right, okay. Uh, hello, Katrina. By the way, uh, who says, "Dear MS, I like to listen to your podcast on the train." or in the car with my mum and dad. Usually I download it onto my iPod, although my dad says I should say generic fruit-based device, GFBD, so I can listen to it in my spare time. I recently went on a caravan trip with my best friend and I bought my GFBD with me. The caravan was fun, but every night when me and my friend settled down to sleep in our shared bedroom, there was a problem. My best friend snores. Oh, that is bad. Loudly. Since the room was so small, the noise was very loud and it was very difficult to get to sleep. Eventually, I had an idea. I remembered that I'd brought a pair of earphones and my GFBD had a supply of your podcasts loaded onto it. I plugged in my headphones, turned up the volume, blocking out the snoring, and your wittering helped me fall asleep, as it does many people, actually. It worked perfectly until the last night of the holiday. I fell asleep early in your Jude Law podcast (laughs) and slept all the way through to the very end. I was woken up by your pinky and perky voice saying, and I'm afraid because we're in the wrong studio, we can't do the pinky and perky voice. I don't have that machine here. I'm your special friend at three o'clock tomorrow morning. I will be in your room knocking on your door. I woke up dazed and confused and it took me a good few minutes to realise what was going on. Usually your podcast is great, but please don't do those voices again. Minion voices, on the other hand, are fabulous. Can you give a fabulous... Is that written fab? F-A-B, full stop. You full stop. L-O-U-S, full stop. Can you give a big what's up to my dad, Martin, who got me into your podcast in the first place? Go ahead. From Katrina. What's up, Martin? Eleven. Boom. Why is it that when people write in who are young, you point to me as if, like, it, and and go boom? Because it's something that you've done. It makes us seem very young when we point at each other and say boom. (laughs) Is that right? That's what kids are doing. If If you walk down the street, they're pointing and saying boom a lot. Okay, fine. Have you not noticed? I haven't, no. Uh, Tom's been on too. In relation to last week's listener reporting their coincidental West Village sighting of Julianne Moore, mm. I too have experience in this, with the same phenomenon. Uh, on multiple occasions, in fact. You could perhaps attribute it to living in glamorous New York and my fondness of strolling the city whilst assol- assaulted by bickering, but I once ambled directly past Cameron Diaz in Tribeca, just as she was conducting her bad teacher interview. I similarly encountered Jason Bateman and family in Soho, but seconds after an unflattering Horrible Bosses review, which is a B from you, Mm -hmm. 
I didn't tell him. And then finally, turning I into... You, I think he would have taken it on the chin. Do you think? Uh, yeah. Turning into Times Square, I was once confronted by a 30-foot-high digital Daniel Craig adjusting his cufflinks in the Skyfall trailer whilst also listening to his charming interview during the special edition podcast. I hopefully await your Rachel McAdams interview with great interest. Keep it up, lads. Your silly podcast is one of life's greatest pleasures. Well, that's nice. All the way through into the end when he describes it as a silly, silly podcast. Yeah. I like to think of it as a podcast of weight and significance. You do get the... the, the where's that place in North London that everybody that everybody Southgate, lives? Enfield. No, Tottenham? No, you're just randomly doing places Islington. in North London. No, but it's not. It's Primrose Hill. That's it, wasn't it? The phrase is apparently anyone who walked through Primrose Hill bumped into Jude Law, Sadie Frost, Morrissey, Suggs. It was just like a thing. Like, apparently, you just you couldn't walk around the there. The best thing about Primrose Hill... As is far as can... the movies are concerned, is 101 Dalmatians. Because when, when they do the dog, the barking chain, yeah. where they take the Dalmatian, because the dogs are missing, and they start the barking across London, that's the top of Primrose Hill. Well, there's, there's a shot in every movie that's set in London at one point when people sit on that bench on Primrose Hill when you can see over the whole, when you can see over London. But I don't live there and I don't know because I live in Southampton. Gordon Wilson uh, says, with regards to Mark's use of the word triology in respect to Elvis. Is this still going? It all stems from a documentary presented by Jonathan Ross in the summer of 1991 on Channel 4 called Viva Elvis. Okay. Oh, I remember that documentary, yeah. Jonathan went in search of the zanier aspects of Elvis fandom. Mm -hmm. I'm looking at it. The show culminated with Jonathan attending the Elvis impersonator convention. Which he wasn't, they weren't allowed to broadcast his one because it hadn't been cleared by Graceland, I remember that. Where a host of Elvi of all shapes and sizes... (laughs) Elvi. Well, that's what... (laughs) That's good, what Gordon good, said. Good, good. Though mostly fat and stuffed into white, tight-fitting jumpsuits, came to pay homage. It was here that Jonathan asked the organiser of the convention which songs were the most popular amongst the Elvi. Uh, and the woman replied that by far the most popular was the Triology, which is what the impersonators call the American Trilogy. Cut to a couple of the Elvi saying, Triology, followed by a montage of performances of the Triology, which ranged from the adequately acceptable to the cataclysmically abysmal. Well, can I just say, that it doesn't originate with the Jonathan Ross documentary. Jonathan Ross's documentary covered it. Yeah, I think that's a, I think that's a fairly logical conclusion. But I, I, I remember, I'd forgotten about that documentary, but I remember watching it, and I seem to remember that at the end... Jonathan Ross does an Elvis impersonation, but they're not able to play it because he hadn't been officially sanctioned by Graceland. Why? I know, no, it's it's bizarre because because official Elvis impersonators, I'm, I'm sh- I think this. Well, is just right. be an unofficial Elvis impersonator. Then. I remember watching the program, and I remember at the end you see Jonathan Ross and you see him doing it, but you don't hear him singing because he's not because they don't have the rights to the song or something, and it's because he's not officially sanctioned. Yours in a tight-fitting white jumpsuit, pulling dubious karate shapes, Gordon from Danny Pace in Sterling. There's a Mexican <laughs> Elvis called Elvez who's very good. Um, a couple of people sent uh, sent uh, pictures taken of Paul Elvis Chang, uh, Chinese restaurant in um, uh, the, the old Kent. Well, not the old Kent Road. Where is it? You're just beyond Waterloo, Elephant Castle, which I had been to. But this is turning into an down. episode of Morning Mornington Crescent, where we just mention lots of places in London. Yeah, despite the fact that I don't live there. But we are going to have to stop very shortly because the sh- we're about to do the show. Um, and and what a show is, it's going <laughs> to what be! What a show it's going to be! Um, and, uh, and unusually, it's been available uh, early because uh, everything being shifted because it's election day. Is it? Yep. Although when people listen to it, it won't be. So there'll be no restrictions there. But okay. for the moment, all the restrictions are in place. So a couple of choruses at the International oh. won't create any problems I for anybody. I really don't think... Because by the time everyone listens, it's too late, right? The editor is already in a sweat in case we say something inappropriate. Go on. He goes to prison if we say the wrong thing. Say something inappropriate just so he has to cut it out. 
There you go. What do you think of that? <laughs> I, think hey. I would never thought I'd hear you say those words. In front of an open mic. Yeah, I know. Well. It's astonishing. So you, you were... said them like you believed them. That was the weird thing. And I did an impression of the person who I was talking about. Oh, was, was that an impression? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I just thought you were doing a kind of Star Trek voice. And I had the outfit ready just to... No, 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 you didn't. But what a shame that the public will never hear that. It certainly changed the way I'm going to vote. <laughs> Thank you very much indeed. Enough. 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 That's all you need to know about. Uh, well, on, on with the show, and, and you're going to really like this one. If you haven't liked any of the others, you might <laughs> like Stick with one. us. <laughs> Hang in there long enough, you'll like something. Hello, good afternoon. It's six minutes past two. Welcome to the uh, flagship movie review programme from the BBC, In a Strange Birth. Flagship Obviously, is moored differently. That's right, every yes. five years uh, we get moved because of uh, voting all over the UK. There's an awful lot of stuff to report tomorrow, so we're going to be doing the movie show uh, today between now and, uh, and four o'clock. Well, we are doing it, not we're going to be doing it. This yeah, well, is us doing it now. But we're doing it now and we are going to be doing it between now and... So present and present continuous. Very good. Is, is that okay? Fine. <laughs> 85058 mayo at bbc.co.uk. If you want to get in touch, you can tweet at Wittertainment. You can't watch the live stream because there isn't a live stream. Because for, because it's a Thursday, we've had to come to Westminster, where we won't be... We're the only people not reporting on that thing that's going on outside. That we're not allowed to talk about. But they've just brought us in here because that's where there's a studio. Anyway, so uh, is it a busy week? What, we had 23 movies last week. How many are coming well, out? Well, we, we're, we're going to try and do eight in this programme, and that won't be all of them. I think there's 14 films out this week. It's a bit of a mad period. And, and very exciting, as we were saying earlier when we were talking to uh, Ellie, John Stewart is going to be on the he show. Is. This is John Stewart from The Daily Show. Um, so from The Daily Show now, but leaving The Daily Show when? Yes, he's leaving The Daily He has... There has been a date now. I think it's like August the 8th. Right, but he's still there now. He's still there now. Still, basically, the king of chat, as far as I'm concerned. He does the most wonderful programme. And we haven't got a show like that. We haven't got a presenter like that who's funny, witty, sharp, clever, insightful, committed. I mean, obviously, he's allowed to not be impartial. Uh, <laughs> you know, so uh, I think... I think it's, and he's done this movie, which is called Rosewater. He's written and directed it, so that'll be John Stewart. A number of people saying, you know, that they enjoy this program. They love John Stewart, so that'll be crossing the streams. Crossing the streams, indeed. Now, an <clears throat> anonymous email, right? Could I ask? It's not starting well. That on the remote chance that you read this out, you don't give my name, as I'm not sure my teacher would see the funny side. Oh, okay, fine. Dear, making it clear and making it clearer. Today's the, day. Today's the day. Love the show. So much so that my lexicon is peppered with witterings such as Blimey Charlie, Turn It Up to Eleventy Stupid, and I'm Not Even Joking. Here's the thing. In a recent English essay, I borrowed one of Mark's most common, albeit uncelebrated, phrases and wrote of Sense and Sensibility, It's Not Without Flaws. Now, it's Mark's go-to observation which he uses to describe almost every film, and now, it seems, I use it to describe any book. My teacher underlined the words and next to them wrote in large, angry letters, VAPID. VAPID? Yes. Okay. Insipid, flat. I looked it up just to make it absolutely... Thank you, thank you. I'm glad you did. But you can imagine, you know, as a piece of literary criticism, yeah. it's not rubbish, because uh, we'll we continue. Yeah. Now, I realise that my academic progress isn't your responsibility, and I really must learn to think for myself, says Anonymous from Cherwell School in Oxford. But given that I am something of a parrot and I'm about to sit my GCSEs, I wonder if for the next few weeks you could avoid pointing out a film is, quote, not without flaws or any, loca any locutions my teacher or, more importantly, my examiner may dismiss as vapid. Failing that, perhaps I should simply avoid describing Jane Austen's work as flawed. I should stress that I give the show 30 out of 30. To paraphrase Jerry Maguire, you had me at what's up. <laughs> 
um, and say hi to Jason. Anyway, so this is vapid is not a word that you use and hear very often. But no. as, but saying it's not. I know why you say not without flaws because you don't it's want different to say than saying flawed. But you could say the film has some flaws. Yes, but it's which is a, better than saying it's a flawed it's film. Not, it, yes, exactly. It's a nuance. Uh, actually, I have absolutely no problem with the phrase "it's not without flaws." But I'm you wouldn't not, say it of sense. You wouldn't say that of sense and sensibility. It's not without flaws. What you would say in an English essay is. It has its flaws. Well, I wouldn't. I'd say it's not without flaws. Well, I mean, and what would be the difference? It's to do with nuance. It's to do with. I mean, it's, it's just to do with nuance. It's not without flaws. It's not quite the same as saying. If you it say has anything its... like that, I'm going to shout "vapid" in capital letters. Well, that's absolutely fine. I went through, you know, my entire school and university career being told not to write things that uh, that, that I wrote. And which one of us has got a PhD? Oh, that would be me. Yes, that's right. And a lot of good it's done you. <laughs> that's all I'd say. Uh, I didn't have to work for mine. No, I know. See? Riley you did Hodson. have to look up Vapid. I did. Riley Hodson, just to be absolutely certain. Just you know, to be before absolutely Before I was certain. going to announce what it was. Yeah. I think what you should do is you should, you should where, the, where the teacher has written Vapid, you should cross it out and write, no, it's not, and then give it back to them. See what happens. Riley Hodson's in Auckland. I'm a 16-year-old boy and applying for a spot in the teenage slump zone in your church, which is a new area which yes. was opened last week. That was just beside Messy Church. I've uh, listened for around a year and I look forward every week to your wittering. I'm actually slumping on a beanbag as I write this, but regrettably I'm using my phone, albeit just to get to your podcast. But, uh, Riley, OK, well, consider yourself in there. And I hope that's OK for you. Um, let's do this from Chris. Then we'll do the box office top ten. Yes. And then John Stewart, the other side of the news. We might do a review this side of the news as well. If really? We yes. I wouldn't bank on it. Well, it we? depends how long you, you want to go on about stuff. Well, I don't know. We'll see. Uh, Chris Flower, I'm a long-term, medium-term, confused podcaster, and over the years have been subversively introducing your wonderful program into my children's life. This has included writing... Hello to Jason Isaacs on the back of a placard of one of my son's theatre group's plays, shouting, shut up, Butwood randomly around the house. And we all know how to do Snapchat and so many other things. Imagine my pride and delight when my son got his new non-fruit-based smartphone and one of the first questions was, Dad, how do I download that wittertainment programme you listen to? <laughs> Very good. All those years have borne fruit. Chris is clearly... A very proud chap. By the way, we uh, we saw Jason this week. We did. Uh, more of him uh, shortly, by the way. Do you want uh, to explain why we saw Jason? Well, no, no, I'm going to explain that uh, in a bit. But suffice to say, when he was knocking around in America, one of the places he was knocking around was the White House. Yes. And someone said to him... Hello to Jason Isaacs. One of the staff Whilst members he was in, in the White, White House. House. Hey, White House staff members, thanks for listening. I'm very pleased about oh, that. He was actually very he was very chuffed about it as well. Uh, box office top ten this week. We have Child 44 at ten. No, don't know that. That and Woman in Gold both came out uh, during the Woman holidays. in Gold. At, no, so SpongeBob movie out of water. Still enjoying it. Still, it's still, I mean, it's still hanging on in there. Still doing very well with. It. And it was funny because there were some people when the week that it came out, we got some correspondence from people saying, "Oh, I didn't enjoy it at all." But it's you know it's done very well. Two by two uh, is at number seven from our Facebook page. Kieran Sean Reese, unengaging and unfunny. Only slightly redeemed by the twist ending that no... Can I actually read that out? No. My seven-year-old thought it was OK, although that amounts to a very critical review. I am almost read out a spoiler. But you didn't. You stopped yourself. Well, I didn't. I stopped myself, but... It's, 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 in, in the version that's playing here, it has, uh, it, it's billed as starring Chris Evans as the voice of Staput. Or stupid, as they seem to say. Um, it's just—it's terribly. And ordinary. it's not—it's not the Captain America, Chris Evans. No, our Chris Evans. 
That's right. You our know, very own. Our, our own. Our very own Chris Evans. And uh, but it's and it, it's it is a role which requires him to say woohoo more often than is entirely palatable. Uh, okay, so we got uh, Cinderella at number six, which. I really like. I'm glad to see that it's it's done well. As you know, when we when Kenneth Branagh came on the program, he, I think it had just opened in America and had some staggering opening weekend amid some controversy. I think it's I, I like it. I think it's very it's a good looking adaptation. I think it's good hearted, um, and I think he's a I think he's a, a fine filmmaker. And I think we both agree that he's one of the best guests we've ever had on the program. Was all he has oh, to chuckles. do is come on and chuckle. Chuckles Branagh. And everything's right with the world. Uh, Holmes at number five. Still hanging on in there. And the, every week this is going to happen now, after having said, you know, it's bland and it's not very interesting, and particularly when you consider the source material, it's not doing a great job of it. It's really quite amazing just how... I still think that, the, that it's doing as well as it is, more because of a dearth of family-friendly, you know, interesting family-friendly movies than because of any great uh, achievements on the part of the movie itself. But it, I, clearly I, I didn't connect with something that other audiences connected with because it's been in the, in the top ten for a long time now. Uh, so Fast and Furious 7 is, is at number four. John in New Chadiga. On Monday afternoon, I took young Katie Castle, because he's from John Castle, took Katie Castle to see Fast and Furious 7. She yeah. is ten. For a lot of the film, I sat looking at her and the various expressions of wonder on her pretty little face. After the film, I asked her what she thought. She said, that was awesome. It's the best film I've ever seen. And I've seen a lot, a lot of, of films. films. How old is she? Ten. Ten. Don't think there is a lot I can add to that, really. It would probably make her day, possibly even a week, if you read out her review. Well, there you go. So Fast and Furious 7, it's the best film that uh, Katie Castle has ever seen. Evs. Put it on the poster. That's all you need. Do you want to add, add anything to that? No, I mean, only that I was surprised after the two hours, 20 minutes of, you know, crashy, smashy stuff, that when they finally do the, the, this sort of this very sentimental farewell, you know, departure thing, I was actually rather moved. It's also interesting to remember that Fast and Furious began life as a Roger Corman-type exploitation movie, which is fairly low-budget, which is about street racing. And then you're sitting there watching this IMAX presentation with cars parachuting out of aeroplanes. And you, know, you think, do you remember when this was about some people driving a bit fast around some streets? So FAF7 is at number four. Uh, FAF7. That's how they're calling it on the street. OK, are they right? Unfriended, is that the word on the street? Unfriended is at number three. R.J. Bland writes, yeah. just wanted to say, as a horror fan, it was nice to hear Mark give a, a sort of glowing review to yeah. Unfriended last yeah, week. Yeah, yeah. Admittedly, a lot of horror uh, films that have been in the cinema recently haven't been too great, but Unfriended had a bit more going for it. It was a socially relevant and at times unsettling film. I did fear that the concept of the movie may be just a bit too gimmicky, but was surprised to find that it made for a rather intriguing and immersive viewing experience. It'd be interesting to see where they go with the sequel, which has already been announced. Uh, Lawrence, who signs, he signs the email, Lawrence, 15, from Norfolk, and I don't drive a tractor. Simon and Mark, I spent my bank holiday going to the cinema to see Unfriended. The trailer had made me somewhat sceptical, as I thought it would be just another generic modern-day horror. Five minutes into the film, I was bored out of my mind, and I was oh, thinking really? I would rather have stayed at home on FB, presumably Facebook. But once I understood the movie's tone, I became extremely engaged. Oh, good, OK. The fine, film good. kept my attention throughout, and although the film was fiction, I felt it had a lot to say about the dangers of cyberbullying, 
while still being entertaining and intelligent. It's now my favourite horror film, and my friends also really enjoy it, although when I left I saw that there was an abundance of popcorn which had been spilt onto the floor due to jump scares. Is this a code violation? It's like, it's like physical proof that a film has been scary. Yeah, the film's working. Just yeah. pick it up afterwards. Yeah. Very straightforward. Uh, so unfriended. Yeah. So, so where, where no, I was just, just wondering whether you, whether, you, whether you wanted me to. So, the interesting thing with unfriended is, I, you know, I compared it to like a, a Blair Witch Project for the online generation, and I, I, I went in not expecting to like it, and I did because it had the strength of its convictions. It did do that thing about staying on the computer screen. I also sort of flagged up the fact that there is a film last year, which is a, a much inferior film called Open Windows, which did a sort of you know kind of walked a similar path. And of course, you, if you go back to Blair Witch Project with the video cam thing, then you go back to Holocaust before that. A number of people uh, tweeted to say, did you see the, the Channel 4 uh, drama Cyberbully with, uh, with Maisie Williamson, which I haven't seen? Um, and some people said, well, isn't, that, isn't it taking its ideas from that? Well, I mean, actually, this was, this was made a while ago. With, 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 they were editing it for quite a long time because I remember a friend who runs a horror film festival talking about seeing a cut of it quite some time ago. But I haven't seen Cyberbully. I will check it out now. I'm just, I noticed that it is on the IMDb. But I think... Um, I think that Unfriended works because it has, as I said, it has the strength of its convictions and also because it taps into a, a really essential thing about cyberbullying, which is that in order for it to have traction, you have to take part in it. And the horror of the film is they're all trying to figure out who's doing this, who's doing this kind of stalking and trolling. And it's like the, the computer screen is staring you in the face for 83 minutes going, it's the, you know, the, the, it's the computer screen. That's not a plot spoiler, incidentally. It's not literally the computer screen. It's, but that's the theme of the film: is that it's actually what it's really about is people being addicted and being unable to being unable to do the thing they all keep saying to each other, which is just log off. Uh, unfriended at number three, far from the Madden crowd at number two. Well, uh, both you and I like this. I mean, I think it could have done with more mud. Um, I said a touch more of the Andrew Cottings wouldn't, have, you know, wouldn't have gone amiss. But what does other, that mean? Well, we discussed this before. Andrew Cotting is the filmmaker who, you know, who makes films that have got a, a palpable sense of mud. And of course, the, the Schlesinger version from '67, uh, which begins with this, you know, lovely bucolic password thing, but it's really to do with mud and gr- and there's a, you really get the sense that everyone who worked on that film was, pro- was probably cleaning the mud out from under their fingernails for a good month afterwards. In the case of the remake, although I think it's very well done, I think Kerry Mulligan is terrific, and I think that Vinterberg, sorry, stop banging the table, that Vinterberg is doing an interesting thing with David Nichols' script, which is that he's deliberately playing up the feminist aspect of it. You did get the feeling that five minutes after they called cut, everyone was clean. Uh, Rachel Knight, uh, is this film a great adaptation of the Thomas Hardy story? Not really. Mr Oak is too gorgeous and eloquent. Sergeant <laughs> Troy is not nearly dashing enough. On that subject, I, I entirely agree with that. He, he looks weak. He has a weak chin. Oh, and right, OK, fine. He looks too weaselly. Don't think that's not so. She wouldn't have thought. Anyway, Bathsheba uh, has been made rather more sympathetic. Her troubles... Yes, more that, f- that is true, and you talked about that with Kerry Mulligan in the interview. Yeah, more a feminist struggle than problems of her own making caused by a wild and contrary nature. At the point at which a violent, unfortunate event happens, hardly anyone reacts at all. Far more tears are shed for the sheep than the characters <laughs> when tragedy strikes. But is it a good and enjoyable film? Absolutely. It's well acted. Kerry Mulligan is feisty, vulnerable and endlessly watchable. Michael Sheen is heartbreaking as the proud but lonely Boldwood. And Matthias Schoenartz embodies Oak with dignity Shut and loyalty. Up. He also provides the sexy scything at sunset, which is effective for those of us in Polduck withdrawal mode. Yeah, although apparently the Polduck scything was wrong. There was, a, there was a lot of stuff from people who know about scything. OK. But so if, it was too breathless. The Polduck scything was too breathless. Really? Yeah. 
Uh, I can't remember how Gabriel Oak does sexy siding at sunset, but if you're missing Poldark, then maybe go see this movie. The film is beautifully shot, says Rachel, Rachel, capturing the changing seasons and the beautiful Dorset countryside. Without feelings, though, you're neglecting plot for those lingering shots. The beauty of England is woven into the storytelling. I don't think it's the most faithful telling of the story as some character depth and motivation is lost, but I think the story on screen is worth telling, especially when it's done with such a visually beautiful manner. Interesting to see that we're now getting uh, emails from listeners who do that rhetorical thing. That you always, Is it any good? No. Why am I asking myself this? So I can answer. Am I a news reporter? Last time I looked. <laughs> I really object to that because it basically gets rid of the need for presenters because the journalists can just interview themselves. Himself. Why has this thing happened? Well, there's a very good reason for it. Can I tell you about it? Yes, yes I, I can. can. Am I going to tell you about it? No, because there's an election on and we can't. Uh, Charlotte, on this. <clears throat> we are told at the start of FFTMC uh, that we are 200 miles outside London. Yes. Yes, I've checked. Belgium is indeed that far away. Yeah. Not only is Matthias Schoenart's Gabriel Oak Belgian and obviously utterly chips and mayonnaise Belgian, he is as wooden as, well, oak. The Dorset accent is a subtle and beautiful sound. Unfortunately, we didn't hear it in this film. Just a Belgian, some RP, and then a host of generic OOR West Country, <laughs> often heard in the West Midlands-based archers. He was outacted by a sheepdog, who at least had a range of facial expressions beyond puzzled and constipated. And constipated and puzzled. At one point, I actually willed the dog to speak. What's that, George? The prize you is trapped in the well. <laughs> Kerry Mulligan could do no wrong. According to my thigh-rubbing middle-aged husband, she does pinch-faced and conflicted very well, but without passion or sensuality. A huge disappointment, but at least Dorset looked gorgeous. <laughs> OK. Um, well, there we are, an alternative view. Um, Vicky wants to say here, uh, myself and two friends, all of us with a crush on Michael Sheen, naturally, and by the end Everyone of the film, a, a similar appreciation get to the back of the queue. Matthias Schoenart eagerly awaited the drama which was expected to unfold. Oh, dear. Visually, it's beautiful, and as a Dorset native, it was lovely to see some familiar sights on screen, but boy, was it dull. I had a hard time getting past the fact that Bathsheba is really annoying, and every time I heard Everdeen, I naturally thought of her far better modern-day heroine. Of course you can't compare the two, but Bathsheba just irritated me as she toyed with the only decent man around while stupidly being impressed by some chap wielding a sword. And don't get me started on the woman who went to the wrong church for a wedding. Who on earth would do that? Anyway, I guess we only That's have the, the source... That's story. That's how it goes. We only have the source material and the, and the time it was written in to blame. to blame. But I could have forgiven all those flaws in the film if it had been more engaging and passionate. It wasn't, so I don't. OK. Well, thank, thank you for that. Thoroughly yeah, even-handed. Yeah, I think so. Anyway, Far From the Madding Crowd uh, is at number two. And the number one movie is... Avengers Age of Ultron. Yeah, which I've now seen twice. I saw it in 3D when it was at the press screening. I saw it in 2D when I uh, went to see it in Eastleigh. I think the 2D is better. The, certainly the special effects look better in 2D. It, 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 the first time I saw it, particularly that opening sequence, looked oddly computer gamey to me in the 3D version and less so in the 2D version. Um, I think that it's as good as you're going to get from that sort of franchise sequel movie when when you understand that really what what it has to do is set things up for the next instalments. But at least Joss Whedon seems to have a heart and soul, which he injects in... I mean, I still think he's fighting with the Marvel behemoth, and the bigger the franchise gets, the more characters that he has to deal with, the, the more it feels like somebody losing their individuality. But I think he's still managed to retain it, and I think he's done... 
a solid job with it. Uh, Loz Squire on an email. Mark says watching the film is akin to watching Joss Whedon wrestle the Marvel machine. I, yes. I this may be uh, true, but it's uh, not a knockout defeat. It's 12 gruelling rounds and goes to a points decision. The, the problems with the film are not the film, but the Marvel machine. If, like me, you visit the fan websites and follow the latest news, you are aware of the Marvel Phase 3 films. As such, you know what sequels are coming, and you have seen the cast lists for the one that's just started shooting. I know that was a bit of a clunky sentence, says Loz, but some <laughs> people may not know that Captain America Civil War is coming. Yes. There is no jeopardy in the film. We know which actors have signed five film deals, and it's unlikely they're going to die. As such, the only time the action set pieces come alive are when the Avengers stop hitting robots to rescue people. Although I enjoyed it, I felt the hype damaged rather than helped the film. Uh, and Oliver Teasdale uh, wants to go. He's wants in to go. Yeah. Uh, he says, I'm 16. I've been converted to uh, the congregation for over a year now and enjoy listening to your programme while I'm at work in the holidays. Yeah. I am contacting you to give the official verdict of Avengers Age of Ultron. After the fantastic first film, my expectations were high and I hope that this film would replace my current favourite film of the past three years, which coincidentally is Avengers. Did it deliver? Well, kind of. From the beginning, we are thrown to uh, amazing action, mastered perfectly, as we see all the characters kicking a lot of bottom and loose ends are tied up from the end credits of Captain America Shields on Wheels. Is that right? Anyway, however, I feel that the creation of Ultron was somewhat rushed. We don't see a great transformation after his escape, and from then on, parts are rushed and not explained fully. I'm wondering whether I... So, partly, last week, I was thinking, I need to know more about Marvel and the, all the backstories and all the other stuff that's going on, but from our two correspondents, I think I would just rather go in yes, not I just, knowing. I think you have to judge the movie about whether the movie works on its own, not on, on how much... I mean, the, the, anything which is engaging with fan culture and... If you look at what's happened you know, with Joss Whedon in the release of the movie and Twitter and coming off to it and all the rest of it, you know, engaging with fan culture is a raw thing. But when you're dealing with these, one of, the re one of the reasons these movies take so much money is because they are absolutely... So you can't ignore it, but I, you know, I, mean, I, I prefer to go and see the movie and see whether it makes sense. If it makes sense to me, then it'll make sense to anyone because I'm not very uh, uh, comic strip literate. It's 2.28, 5 Live. The movie reviews on a Thursday because of the election because there'll be a lot of news to report uh, tomorrow. So we're doing our movie show uh, between now and 4 o'clock and the Jon Stewart interview will be along after the 2.30 news in sport. Let's do a new movie which is out this week. So let's do Phoenix, which is directed by Christian Petzold and um, set uh, after the war. Nina Hoss is Nelly, who... Uh, in the camp survivor in the closing days of the war is left for dead um, and then uh, she's disfigured has reconstructive surgery during the reconstructive surgery the surgeon keeps saying you know would you like a new face she says no I want the old face that I have she then returns to Berlin where she meets her estranged husband, Johnny, who doesn't recognise her. Um, she looks different enough that he doesn't recognise her and she doesn't tell him who she is. She now claims to be Esther. But he thinks she looks enough like his wife, that, his wife who he believes to be dead, that she could become involved in a scam to access the wife's... Uh, fortune. So then we begin this sort of noirish thriller, which is obviously influenced by Vertigo on the one hand, and I think to some extent uh, uh, Wolfgang Peterson shattered as well, in which 
it's about mistaken identity. It's a psychological drama um, in which somebody is tutored to be somebody they already are by somebody who doesn't know who they are. And so there are all these genre trappings, and you do have to accept at uh, face value the idea that the, that the husband wouldn't recognise uh, his wife because of the reconstructive surgery. And that is very much a sort of genre trap. You either buy that or you don't. Of course, beneath it all is something far more serious. There is this I, idea that actually what it's really about is it's about wishful forgetfulness and remembering and guilt in the wake of this kind of national horror. It's inspired by La Retour de Sandra, which was the, the, the novel which inspired, which upon which J. Lee Thompson's 1965 film Return from the Ashes was based. And as you sort of start to, to, to dig into it, it becomes a, a much more interesting story about you know, about war guilt, about survival, about the unwriting of history, the re-remembering of history. But uh, on its surface, it is this kind of an almost pastiche sort of film, you know, very good-looking. The, the, it's held together by the fact that Nina Hoss's central performance, I think she's now made six or seven films of Petzcoles, and she is very, very good. Um, but if it wasn't for the strength of her performance, if you didn't believe in her character so much, you would be sort of, I think, knocked off course by the fact that the plot takes some believing. But once you've assumed, once you've got over the fact that it's a contrivance, that it's a noirish contrivance, and it's there for sort of generic ends, and, I, and you can, if, once you can let yourself believe in that, the film does have depth, very very solid performances, good looking, and with sort of murky, solid depths underneath what is essentially an almost pastiche genre surface that was very good I, thank you pastiche noiry surface <laughs> i'm gonna write all these down <laughs> are you all okay, film students listen very very carefully uh okay so in the next half hour you're going to hear uh, john, john stewart and i hope i don't i'm not going to sound too uh Fawning. Starstruck and fawning any more than normal. So you're here. John Stewart, what else are you going to be doing? We'll definitely be reviewing uh, in the next half an hour? Yes. Oh, well, in the next Only half hour, before three o'clock. I'm not interested in anything after three. Yeah, I haven't got the thing down in front of me, so we'll just be doing some other films. We'll probably be doing Big Game. We'll be doing, probably uh, do big game. loads of other stuff. Fair enough. Tomorrow, there's another thing coming, which is a bigger and shinier thing, and in many ways a better thing. Which is called? I think. The because thing. Because it's a thing with production values, this is. It's an experimental thing, though. It's right. Not, it's not a finished well it's kind of finished but it's still experimental and you can watch it and if enough of you like it then it might become a regular thing and if you all hate it then it, then, it, then don't it come won't. running to us so basically it's a, it's a companion piece to the program which which you can watch uh, there's lots of new bits of a very visual nature we yes. mentioned this uh, last week so you can actually watch the Kerry Mulligan interview there's lots of yeah. Kerry Mulligan it's a televisually interview. enhanced radio show with stuff it's a radio show with things yeah yeah, I suppose so. There's yeah. a there's a super surprise cameo appearance from a very recognisable security guard. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. A couple of new features which we mentioned on last week's programme, summed up in a selfie and lobby correspondence, which on the basis of just one week is already a stunning success. So lobby correspondence is people coming out of the film and then Filming giving their us reviews, their review yeah. on their phones in the lobby, not in the screening room. And summed up in a selfie is basically, it's a selfie of you. I mean, don't send us any more because if this thing is just, is just a one-off, then, then there's absolutely uh, no point. But you reviewing a movie uh, just in a selfie. Anyway, uh, it's going to, all this is going to be available tomorrow, around about the time that we normally go on air. So you'll be able to get it via the Five Live website. It'll also be on our YouTube channel. 
Uh, if you keep an eye on the website and the Wittertainment Twitter feed, we'll let you know exactly when it's up it there. It And I'm phrasing it like that because we don't know when it's going to be up there. It'll but be it, sort of 2 o'clock-ish. It'll be round about, round about 2 o'clock There'll be nothing yeah. else for no. you that's paying... Nothing you know, else happening. Nothing else happening. All you'll be wanting to do is you'll be waiting for this exciting exactly. piece of film. It looks rather lush and gorgeous, particularly the bit with Kerry Mulligan in. Yeah, I would say she does look a lot better than. I hope that was clear. So, nineteen minutes to three o'clock. So uh, we're about to talk to John Stewart. You're about to talk to John Stewart, and and you have to put on your shade so that you're not completely struck by the because you. I've never seen you starstruck so much as when you when it was that you knew you were going to do John Stewart because you love John Stewart. I do think he's uh, particularly good at what he does. Uh, and when he's not doing it, he can clearly make movies. Uh, the new movie is Rosewater. We'll talk to him about that. Here's a clip, first of all. Sir, you're making a big mistake. I am a journalist. That's it. Nothing more. Just a journalist. Yes. As a spy, I'm just trying to figure out why your country is so terrifying. The first thing to know about Iran is that it is not evil. Americans and Iranians have a lot of things in common more than they have differences. <laughs> what do I have in common with you? So can you tell me why... <laughs> Just a uh, journalist meet up with this American spy on the evil journalist. He's not a spy. He's not a spy? He's, no, it's a show. It's a show? A comedy show. It's, it's stupid. It's, it's very stupid, yes. He's a comedian pretending to be a spy. So can you tell me why American pretending to be a spy had chosen to interview you? And why would a real spy have a TV show? And that's a clip from Rosewater. I'm delighted to say we've been, jo- uh, been joined from New York by its writer and its director, John Stewart. John, hello, good afternoon. How are you? Thank you very much for having me on your program. Well, it, well, it's a pleasure, but I have to say it's kind of like the least you can do. I've been a subscriber to your TV show for, for many. I actually pay money uh, to watch your what? show. Yeah, it costs You're money, the one. Yeah. You know, they told me there was this guy and that he paid money to see our <laughs> I said, there's no way. There's no way somebody's <laughs> thrown out cold, cold hard cash for this. Yeah. Anyway, so um, Rosewater is, uh, is the movie. It's come out in the States, coming out over uh, in the UK, and, of course, intimately linked to your show, to The Daily Show. Just tell us the story about how you, how you became involved. Uh, very briefly, we had sent uh, a correspondent. Normally, you know, if, if you watch the show, we, we generally keep our correspondents in front of pictures of the places that they go to. But every now and again, uh, for no reason in particular, we send them to an actual place, and we sent them to Iran uh, in the lead-up to the uh, election between uh, Mousavi and Ahmadinejad in 2009. Uh, truthfully, not because of that, because George W. Bush had called them the axis of evil. And so we'd been trying to get somebody in because we'd never been to an evil place before. I just wanted to see what it looked like. Yeah. Uh, while we were there, we uh, conducted an interview, Jason Jones, one of our correspondents, with Maziar Bahari. Uh, once the election was over and the street protests took over and the allegations of fraud and the crackdown of the government, Maziar was arrested. Uh, he was held at Evan Prison in solitary for 118 days. They played for him the tape he did, the piece he did on our show, as evidence that he was a spy because our correspondent was dressed in a keffiyeh and said uh, on camera, I am a spy, tell me about Iran. And, uh, and they said, why is a spy speaking to you on the eve of the election? And, and I believe Maziar's response was, uh, why would a spy have his own television show? And I think that's when, I think that's when the room went black. But it, it so it's it, but it's quite a jump from that story, you being a part of this extraordinary and terrifying story to actually deciding yes. that you're the guy who's going to make the movie. Correct. Yes, that happened because Maziar and I got incredibly impatient with the Hollywood process, with the idea. You know, when we first got together, he was saying, "Is there any way you could help me 
see if we can make this into a film. And I thought, well, sure, I've never done that before, but why not? And so we sent it to a variety of writers that we thought might be might be good for it, writers that we admired, but it turns out other people admired them as well and would give them money, whereas we didn't really have any. So uh, at a certain point, I thought, this is a very relevant story. It's a story that I would like to be seen this century. So uh, maybe the best way to to execute it would be to write it and, and, and do it myself. And have you always wanted to be a storyteller? I mean, is, is this something that you'd been thinking about doing for a while? Uh, no, I really hadn't. You know, I, I started in, in stand-up, uh, and I, I think ultimately probably always viewed myself through that lens, um, had been doing this show for 15 years or so. And, and we've written a couple of books on this show, you know, done other projects because, you know, Lord knows anything you can do to, to keep away from having a fulfilling life. And just working all the time. <laughs> so I thought, well, why don't I just add this to that as well? It's 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 uh, a story which has been told many times through the years. The idea of an oppressive uh, country finding people that they don't yes. like and uh, and and torturing them. But was it uh, was it too dangerous a story to cast Iranians in the lead? Uh, no, I don't think it was too dangerous a story. I think it was. You know, there is uh, for an Iranian to participate in it. Uh, I, I think they would necessarily probably have to have already. Uh, been somewhat in diaspora from Iran. Mm. I don't think someone who wanted to go back and forth would be able to, and I didn't want that decision to be made. Uh, there are Iranians in the film, Golshifta Farhani, who plays uh, Mazir's sister, Shori, uh, Agdashlu, who plays Mazir's mother. Um, you know, I think originally I, I kind of had a purist sense of, you know, this must be in Persian, it must be an all-Iranian cast, preferably uh, Iranians who'd only been held in Evan prison, and, and Mazir was very clear about the idea that don't you want people to see it and i thought well yeah that's probably good that's a good concern uh so you know i just decided to with him as our touchstone if he was okay with things i was okay with things and we went with what we thought were uh, the most appropriate uh, casting choices for the character yeah and when we see when we see um Mazia being arrested right at the very beginning he has a puzzled look on his face mm-hmm. and i have to say i i, I smiled because i say well, i'm not surprised that you're Smiling, because that's, that's Martin from the bridge arresting you. And we all know he's Danish. Martin from the bridge, that's right. He's Danish, and you're probably thinking to yourself, why is a Danish guy a guard in an Iranian prison? Yeah. It really, it almost makes no sense. And then, even then, he thought, oh, my God, I can't believe the guy from the bridge is going to keep me here. And that's really what I think he went, oh, now I'm going Anyway, after I mean, he's but he is fantastic in it. But you, they have That's an unusual, they have an unusual relationship. Um, when he so once once Mazia has been arrested, and he's being held, and uh, Kim Badina, who is uh, is playing his torturer. But it's, can you just explain just a little bit about? Because he, yes, he's brutal and yes, he's savage. But it's slightly more nuanced and complex than that. Well, I think the the, the complexity of it is you know was to portray the torture as as done through a bureaucracy as opposed to. I think we have a cinematic sense of torture as uh, the ticking time bomb scenario. And you know, and I'm going to beat you until you give me. But the truth is, it, it's a much more bureaucratic and uh, sterile process. Uh, still brutal, but one that is sort of devoid of purpose to some extent and just serving a state goal as opposed to one of our more narrative goals. And I think that within that, you have to remember that this is a job for the interrogator. And the interrogator views it as Maziar is a VIP prisoner. This is an opportunity for him. He's a guy that's a bit of a thug and, and thinks, well, you know, if I do well here, that will catapult me and, and make this job. I'll get a promotion and I'll get these. So he's got other concerns 
that are much less ideological and much more practical. And so when you view it through the lens of work, it becomes a much different story. And the torture is cruel and the, and the torture is brutal. But would it be fair to say that in comparison with some of the movies that we've seen and the documentaries maybe that we've seen in recent years, it's, it's not as brutal as people might be fearing? Oh, I, I don't think there's any question about that. Absolutely. And I think that, you know, what you see from ISIS or these things is those are anomalies. What, what we try to present in the movie is an everyday dehumanization of people that occurs in these prisons, whether they be in, you know, the United States uses solitary confinement as well, whether it's in the West and the East, you know, whether it's an ideological regime, a democratic regime, we all, uh, there are forms of this brutality that exist all around the world. And it's, it may not be as sexy cinematically, but it's certainly uh, more pervasive. And you mix the story with, with actual uh, reportage, and we see some of the televised debate between Ahmadinejad uh, and, and right. Mosavi. What did you – I, mean, I, I didn't watch it, I have to confess. I didn't see the whole of that debate. But how did, how did it – it seemed pretty savage, the bit that you did put in. How did it compare with other uh, leadership debates that you've experienced over the years? Uh, it's actually quite it, – it's, it's somewhat mild. I mean, the, the, the moment where he pulls out the file on Mosavi's wife is, is – probably more beyond the pale than something. But it really is much more conversational than I think a Western audience would understand a debate to be. It's And not nearly, you know, we have a vision. Again, you know, our dialogue about Iran is this is part of the axis of evil. Their dialogue about us is death to America, the great Satan. Watching them go through their political process, you realize it's a far more nuanced and interesting country and land than we have led, been led to believe in the same way that, that we are a more nuanced country than they've been led to believe. Yes, and, and Hopefully and, those moments uh, uh, help illuminate uh, those, those nuances. And, and, and as your, your film and others have, have, have made the point that Iran's sort of anti-US CIA paranoia isn't entirely misplaced given uh, events right. many decades ago. We did, over, we did overthrow their democratically elected government. Just once. We only did it once? Come on. It was once. 1953, we overthrew the government. It happens. So, and just on the, the televised debates, and obviously thoughts turning to the election right. coming up uh, uh, in the United States. This will be the first presidential election which Americans have had to go through without you, John, uh, for a while. Uh, <laughs> I but, don't know. Yeah, they, they they lasted hundreds of years without me, so I think they'll I think they'll be okay. Are you going to miss it? I'm sorry. I thought you asked if I was going to miss it. Yeah. <laughs> okay. No, I'm not going to miss it, John. <laughs> what I'll miss is the fun I have with the people here doing it. We, we have an awfully good time doing it, but I, the, the actual process of it is somewhat dispiriting. But I, you know, we have an awful, we, we make uh, uh, lemonade out of lemons for the most part. Well, your program is the most joyous 69 pence a day that I spend. So, uh, <laughs> so I'm actually going to be better I off. I got to tell you. It is, it is worth no more than 21 pence a day, and I can, I can swear by that. Before we finish, I have to tell you, we had Hugh Grant on the show uh, a few months ago, and I lovely asked him man. whether, he was, lovely, still, lovely whether he was still banned from The Daily Show. And he said he wasn't sure, but he did confess that he had thrown what he called a mini tanty. Uh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> a phrase I'd never heard before. Oh, yeah. I had never heard that before either, and it makes it sound so much more adorable than what I think we experienced. <laughs> but I like it. Yeah. Is he still banned? I don't think he was ever banned. It was oh, okay. just more like life. life's too short. I mean, I, you know, we only use one guest a day. Half the time it's authors. So we don't really have that many. But I would not say he's in a – he's not on the no-fly zone list if that's what you're – He might have to wait for the cha- the regime change uh, in August before he I think he's back. going to have to wait for regime change. And maybe he's the one behind the regime change. I don't know. Maybe it was the sanctions that were put on the show that caused this. John Stewart, we appreciate your time. Thank you very much indeed, sir.
My pleasure. Thanks a lot for, for talking to me. Uh, John Stewart is in uh, New York talking uh, about Rosewood. And the fact that I made him laugh, even though it was yeah, talking pleased. about the mini tanty. Yeah. Uh, he, did, he, he, did, he did find that very funny. And I've forgotten how funny it is the first time you hear that word. It is a bizarre construction, isn't yeah, it? Who, mini tanty. Whoever calls it that? People who say bumps are daisies. Uh, Jack Blackburn on an email. I had the good fortune to see Rosewater at the London Film Festival and watch John Stewart give a talk on it. I thought the film to be excellent, one of the most individual, gripping and affecting directorial debuts I've ever seen. It's a reflection of its director in some ways, funny and serious and honest. I highly recommend everyone uh, to see it. It's beautifully acted, sensitively made piece of enlightening cinema. And it is, it is amazing to think, here's a stand-up comedian yeah. who presents a chat show and he makes a movie... That's this good. That's what I thought. What did you think? I think it's a very solid piece of work. I mean, the, the, the situation is completely sort of bizarre and Kafkaesque that having taken part in this sort of slightly spoof interview in which somebody you know, jokingly says, I'm a spy, why is the country terrifying? Then suddenly finds himself arrested and interrogated and presented with this... And it's like the joke... I remember somebody once saying, you know, that's, that's the problem with, with jokes, they're not funny in court. Well, nor are they funny, you know, in, in those sort of you know, interrogation situations. And what the film does is it makes you feel that awful terror of, you know, the, the, the madness of the interrogation, which is that, you know, you're a spy and you're guilty of espionage, and we will find some way of getting you to that point. Now, as far as sort of writing and directing is concerned, there was a quote from uh, John Stewart in which he said that the original impetus for the film came from my own feelings of guilt and, and atonement over what had happened to him in Iran. So there was some sense of, I mean, I know when he said there we wanted to sort of sidestep the Hollywood development process and just get on with doing it. And I think he's done a very solid job with uh, writing the script and a very solid job with the direction. Um, not least when you think that actually the main interaction between Gal Garcia Bernal, who is Mexican, and Kibodnia, who is Danish, and actually that's not the thing that's primarily in your mind whilst you're watching their sort of really strange screen relationship. That relationship is gripping, and one of the reasons it's gripping is because as far as the interrogation is concerned, what the film makes clear is that his interrogator, known as Rosewater, is in this situation of pathetic powerlessness and his anger and his rage is partly due to what you see happens to him because he's answerable to people for whom he's not impressing. And, uh, you know, John Stewart said then it's like a career path. But there's, his, his rage gets worse when the results that he's getting from the interview aren't impressing his superiors. So there is this, this sense of the whole thing being, I mean, as John Stewart said, this kind of seeping corruption, which is to do with it, it's climbing a career ladder. And therefore, as I said, the whole thing becomes Kafkaesque. The whole thing becomes just surreal. The only sort of directorial flourish, because it's directed fairly straight, are the, the visions of the father with whom he has uh, these discussions. And that, even, even that is done in a very sort of... Uh, you know, straightforward, almost like a magic realist way that we, we, we're not going to make any fuss about these being apparitions. They, everything is going to seem as tangible as everything else. So I think what the film does is it tells a very good account of that story. You're certainly in, in, engaged by it and you're enraged by it, um, even though I, most people going in will know that the story has a, you know, a, not a happy, yeah, it has a happy ending. We know because we remember this from happening in the news recently. Well, it's it? also based on a memoir that the yes. guy wrote after he came out. No, no, exactly. But I mean, it's you also you you have a sense of how long it's going because it's recent enough history that we that people do remember it happening. But I think what it does is it does trap you in that, so it does put you in his position. I think it's a very strong uh, performance by Gal Garcia Bernal. But I think Kim Bodnia is actually the secret weapon because I think he is terrific. It's him who breathes life into the character of Rosewater. It does, and it somehow, does, I mean, I was humorous moment 
but it's it, not funny. But, e- but everybody who's watched The Bridge, and there'll be a lot of people, it takes a while for you to go, to stop thinking of him. Oh, did it? Okay. As, as the guy from The Bridge, because he's such a strong character in that TV series. But after a while, you do. Okay. I have to say that, I, I, having not uh, seen The Bridge, that wasn't something, I just thought he was doing a terrifically good job of, of being this, this interrogator who is actually under you know himself is undermined and himself is powerless and that that's what makes it all the worse so i think it's a very solid solidly done job it's not particularly sort of flashy or there's there's nothing in the direction i said other than those visions of the father that make it stand out as a piece of work it's a solid piece of work and it's an important story well told uh, OK, so we'll do some more on that. Uh, Mayo at bbc.co.uk. You can text 85058, a couple of minutes away from 3 o'clock. Anything you'd like to Should do? Should we very quickly do uh, Chris Rock's Top 5? So this is a film uh, written by, uh, directed by and starring Chris Rock. Uh, he plays uh, a guy who's been uh, a, a sort of a comic hit. He's done a number of uh, films in which he's played a crime-fighting bear. Uh, he now wants to be taken seriously because he's uh, he's now he's straightened his life out. He wants to be taken seriously. He's made a film about slaves revolting. He is walking the streets with Rosario Dawson, who is a journalist who he wants to take him seriously. Meanwhile, his film is about to open. It's clear it's not going to do very well. Film has loads of cameos from people like Kevin Hart. Here's a clip. It's hard enough getting you a job as it is. I mean, it's not like everybody's knocking on your door for work. It's really hard to get your work. You know that and I know that. Do you think the wedding is hurting me? Are you kidding me? Listen, Andre, the wedding is the best thing that you got going right now. And let's be honest. Andre, this thing flops. We could be talking Dancing with the Stars, man. Dancing with the stars? Yes, Dancing with the Stars. That's where you're at right now. Andre, all these people want to do is follow you around for one day. Let them follow you around. You know, if I get the word out, this movie could still be a big hit. It could be like a Haitian Django. If, if you say so, Andre, then yes. Hold on, hold on. Hey, hey, hey. What is going on? Where's everybody running to? Zoolander's in the conference room. Vince Still is in the conference These white people don't tell me Considering um, how good Chris Rock was in that recent Julie Delpy film, Two Days in New York, to which this definitely owes a debt, I wanted this to be a lot funnier than it was. There are moments in it that are sort of passingly funny, but uh, firstly, the conceit of the, the, the walk and talk with the journalist doesn't quite work, despite you know efforts to make it seem convincing. But the big problem is that although Chris Rock, I think he's you know he's intelligent, he's funny. There are there is a constant recourse to crass misogynist hooker humour. There is also one routine in it which is already become quite infamous which is i think profoundly homophobic they've argued that it may not be it's just it has no place in the film and it strikes a very very bad note so it's not as funny as it needs to be it's nothing like as good as he can be it has humor in it which really they should do better than that needs to try harder although there are some laughs on route another hour of uh, movie reviews coming up 85058 may with bbc.co.uk that's how you get in touch you can tweet it with entertainment what else are we going to review in the next hour? Well, the big one, we're going to be reviewing Girlhood, which is this new French film, and loads of other stuff. It's six minutes past three. Hello, good afternoon. We're here till four o'clock in an unusual place because of the election, because there'll be far too much news to bring you. It'll be non-stop news from ten o'clock tonight. But until then, there is this stillness. Yes, you may have heard me describing it as a funny studio, because this is not our studio. We're in a different studio. In a different studio. I, it's, it's we're just, down in Westminster. Just screens because. are in different places. Microphones are in different places, and it's all odd. Anyway, but it's a political stillness. There's nothing going on as far as politics is concerned, so we're talking movies for another uh, hour. And we bring you this from Carrie Tulinius, who's one of our Finnish listeners. I mentioned that uh, you might be our only Finnish listener, but anyway, it's news from Finland. News from Finland. Breaking news from Finland. (laughs) I just came across a cinema practice in Finland which has to be stopped. Okay, go on. And we are obviously the people. Uh, If there are elections in Finland, we're going to stand. Perhaps by forming a Finnish wittertainment party, 
is the suggestion. I went to see Inherent Vice at the local world of cine equivalent, which is called Kino of Finn. As I took my seat... Which I, is called Kino of Finn. Kino of Finn. Mean Finnish cin- OK, fine. OK, you mean Finnish cinema, yeah. 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 As I took my seat, I realised I had to dash to the restroom, which I did with some haste, hoping to get back before the film proper started. However, on returning to the screen, I found myself locked out. I'd heard that the movie could be quite confusing, so I didn't want to miss the beginning. Therefore, I rushed around the cinema looking for an employee, finally reaching the concession stand where a combination of frantic gesticulation and beginner's-level finish sufficed (laughs) to pull one of the workers away to let me back in. Luckily, I got back to my seat just as the last of the ads was ending. I explained to my Finnish girlfriend what had happened, and she says that locking the entrance to a screen after the last guest goes in is not uncommon in Finland. Wow. In other words, it's common in Finland. Finland. I have lived in Iceland. Well done for tying those two threads together. And we we were about to review a Finnish film, so this is like... Perfect. Just, you know... And we haven't even talked about this. This is like a (laughs) sequence. I've lived in Iceland, the US and France, gone off into the cinema and never so much as heard of this practice. Does this happen anywhere else or do other countries hold sacred the right to dash to the loo? before the film begins. You'd be terrible because you're always dashing off to the loop. Not when the film's going. No, this is just, just, before, just, before, just yes. before it started. Does anywhere... Has this, you don't lock the cinema. You don't stop people from coming in once the last guest has arrived. And how do you know when the last guest has arrived? When, they, uh, when Psycho opened in, whatever it was, either 59 or 60, he, as you know, Hitchcock famously had these uh, standees of himself put in the, in, in the foyers of cinemas, which said that if you don't get there for the beginning, you won't be allowed in. So basically, you either go for the whole movie or you don't go. And it was a big PR stunt. It was a very kind of William Castle. But if you've paid, if you've paid, you can't shut the door on someone just because they've gone to the toilet. No, it seems harsh. It does. It seems, seem, it seems, a, a, bit bit seems a bit Anyway, you know. it's a Finnish practice. If it's anywhere else, uh, we'd like to hear, from, hear, hear about it. May or BBC. We'll have this, can we call this section, I've started, so I'll finish. Very good. And top Finnish fact, yeah. uh, courtesy of Carrie Tulinius, Finland... And Iceland, for that matter, mm. not part of Scandinavia. No, that's right. But part are Nordic, Nordic countries. Yes. Oh, you, you. Well, because we kind of discussed this before that it was driving me nuts, so I looked it up. Can I just ask you a question before you do our, t- our first top review about you may. Mad Max? Yes. Uh, from uh, from. So I haven't seen the new Mad Max yet. No. Um, with Mad Max Fury Road soon to open, at least yes. here in California. Colin is in California. I think it opens here next week. It's the original. Uh, so my question. Is the original Mad Max trilogy worth revisiting? Oh, I yeah. have fond yeah. memories of those films, but it has been a long time since they were out. Not all films age well. Should I make the effort to dig up those films and watch them again prior to Fury Road? Or is it better to let the original three be and watch Fury Road as a fresh experience? I worry that the post-punk future vision will feel dated, but I defer to the learned film critic's pronouncements. I Here is a pronouncement. Okay, I haven't watched Mad Max in a long time, but the last time I saw it, it was pretty good. That was a long time ago, but I think it would probably stand up. I mean, the thing that you might for- you might forget about the first Mad Max is just how much of a sort of, you know, an exploitation movie it is. I mean, as they went on, it got sort of bigger and, you know, pop videos and, you know, more grandiose set design. The original is a pretty nuts and bolts, but it's a very good film. It's very well made. Yeah. I, I seem to remember one was good and two was good and three was disappointing. Yeah, I mean, as the trilogy went on, that's fine. But I mean, the, but the first one, I would certainly go back and revisit. Yeah, I think it was pretty solid. On the subject of Mini Tantes, which uh, came up with John Stewart with reference to Hugh Grant. Yeah. Addy in Brighton. The term Tante is, in fact, from Australia. 
as in she chucked a massive tanty. tanty. Adding mini is purely a Hugh Grant flourish. OK. So, so <laughs> thank you for that. OK, so very good. 85058 mail at bbc.co.uk. New stuff then. Big game. Finnish film. Finnish action adventure movie. You've probably seen the posters. Um, so uh, Samuel L. Jackson is president of the United States. Flying from A to B takes him over Finland. Uh, suddenly, ground-to-air missile attack. Uh, he has to bail out of Air Force One in the escape pod. He's pushed into the escape pod. Uh, and then he lands uh, in... Well, actually, he lands in Germany, because it's actually shot in Germany, but it's Finland. You know, it's kind of... You know, it's Germany winter. pretending to be Finland. Germany pretending to be Finland, exactly. All, all the Germans are walking around with Finnish accents. And, uh, and there he meets Oskari, who is this 13-year-old Finnish boy who has been sent out into the forest to hunt and catch something as part of a rite of passage, which he must go through in order to call himself a man. Samuel L. Jackson is the president. Onit uh, Mila uh, is Oscar. His clip. Who are you? You don't recognize me? I'm William Allen Moore, the president of the United States. Are you hurt? No, I am lost. And I could use your help. You have a phone? Or is your house close by? A town, small village? Well, where'd you come from? I mean, it must, must be something. I mean, did you just pop up out of the ground? Is it, is it a comedy? <laughs> well, okay, so... From that, from that clip, it's yeah. not immediately clear whether it's tense, nervous excitement or hilarious... The funny thing is that actually... In a in a pithy way, you've kind of cut to the heart of it. Thank you so much. Um, so it's directed by uh, John Murray Hollander, who made uh, Rare Exports, which is that really strange Christmas movie about uh, wild Father Christmases, and does that interesting Nordic thing of not Scandinavian, not Scandinavian Nordic um, of it's it's a sort of folk tale, but it's got a you know grim side to it, and it's kind of like the underside. Of Christmas is dark and strange film. So in the case of this, he, he the director, the right director, describes it as being that he wanted to go for the the tone of something which was a cross between eighties action movies and those rites of passage movies. So he's aiming apparently for something which is a cross between Die Hard and the Karate Kid. And I think it, that what you're hearing in that thing when you want it is is hang on, is that meant to be funny or not? Because it's it's an absolutely ridiculous boy's own adventure, knowingly ridiculous, cheekily ridiculous, and yet. Not everything about it, I think, is quite as knowing and quite quite as deliberate as possible. Despite the fact that the, uh, I mean, the, the you know the, the the machinations of the plot are completely ludicrous. You know, uh, uh, president bails out a plane down in the forest. People trying to kill him. Terrorists. You know, young boy with bow and arrow who's gone out to hunt a bear is actually there. You know, the guy is going to be the president's guide through this. If so, boy's own adventure, ridiculous stuff. And when you look at the poster, the poster, which actually does seem to invoke Airport Seventy Five in that kind of really old cheesy manner. So you think, OK, that's fine. So what it's doing is it's knowingly playing with it. But actually, for a lot of it, you think, well, it's not cheesy. It is just, it's, it's a bit rubbish. Um, its main problem is it falls between two target audiences. There is a moment in it in which Sam Jackson uses his, I suppose, now trademark Oedipal expletive, and they cut it in half to get it a 12 certificate so that you know that Sam Jackson says the word, but he doesn't actually say the word. And in a way, that's kind of... Tal- just the melon bit. It's the melon, yeah, with okay. the, yeah, and the, begin- the, melon, the yeah. melon, the beginning of the farming bit, but it's cut in order so that you, so that you, and if this is something we talked about this before with um, one of the Transformers movies in which they 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 invoke the word cluster fruit cake, and um and it was the same thing about it. I still I, get nervous. With, I still is get it nervous? Is it okay 
to sort of, you know, to well, the cutting of that word in a way is the central problem. Is even in the cut form, it seems completely out of place in a movie, which up until that point seems to be playing like a young, like a younger kid's boy's own adventure, which is completely ridiculous because it's the thirteen-year-old kid with the bow and arrow meeting the president of the United States out in the out in the woods that, whilst whilst having, that, that, that could, could be, be could fine, be but it's pushed to sort of, you know. To the borderline of 12A and 15 certificate territory, and therefore, unfortunately, it's too silly for the older audience. It's slightly too grown up for the younger audience. I'm not entirely sure that all the cheesiness is deliberately, knowingly cheesy. Jim Broadbent um, has a role in it, in which he's sort of <laughs> he spends a lot of it eating a sandwich, and there's a kind of character development in the fact that he's eating is he a finished? sandwich. He no, 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 no. He's not finished. No, he's American. He's he's back at he's back at he's back at head Q quarters, HQ head head. Q quarters HQ. Where has that come from? Come back, come back to HQ quarters. It's Dad's army, isn't it? I have no. He's I back at no HQ idea. quarters eating a sandwich, and it's the whole thing is a little bit shambolic and a little bit messy in a way in which I can't quite tell how much of it is deliberate, and I suspect that it's not quite as deliberate as it's meant to be. I was disappointed by it and thought it was a bit rubbish, and I think the main rubbish thing about it is it can't quite figure out. It's not entirely without without fun i mean there are things in it that are ridiculously you know that, are, that if it, if the whole thing was playing as a pg certificate movie it would be fine as it is it doesn't quite seem to know what it is and i don't believe that the cheesiness is entirely deliberate if i was president of america and yes. i and i crashed into a forest the child i would like to be looking after me i don't know is, is, is the, Haley joel osmond from ai no i think i'd go for hannah Oh yes, as played by Saoirse yeah, Ronan. Yes, who because lethal assassin. Yes, that's right. Because yeah. she is super dangerous. Well, she is, and super you are dangerous. not going to mess with her. But that is there a better child to be? No, no, that would be absolutely. She would absolutely be the person that you'd want on your side. So is that the end of that game? That is the I end. Think of that that game, might be the yeah. end of that game. Yeah. Unless you can think of someone else. No, no. you'd rather have protect you. Saoirse Ronan absolutely nails that one. Very good. If you're going to be met by a teenager, yeah. No, that's it. There's, there is nobody better to be with if it's going to okay. be a teenager. Eight five zero five eight. So uh, there are other big movies out this week. Yes. So girl. Which is directed by Celine Ciamar, um, which has been a terrific sensation uh, in France. French movie, uh, and the French title is Bandefie, and the English title Girlhood, the English language title, seems to invoke two different movies. This is a story of uh, a girl growing up in, in in the housing projects outside Paris in the Bonlieu that we are sort of that we've been introduced to by Mathieu Kassovitz's La Haine, which unbelievably is 20 years old. I mean, incredible that La Haine is 20 years old. I mean, that's, that is really astonishing. But that was the thing that sort of put it on the cinematic map that we know what those, you know, you know what the, what the, the, the projects of, of Paris look like, and they're tough and grainy and black and white and monochrome. And actually, since then, we've had a bunch of exploitation movies set in them. So uh, she's, uh, she, that's where she's growing up. She's going to school. She has very few prospects. She had a difficult home life. She has an abusive brother. She's looking after her younger sister. And then the school seems to basically close ranks and suggest that she has no uh, higher educational um, future at all. And this seems to be something that they've decided on the basis of her colour, of her race, rather than anything to do with her ability, because she's clearly very, very smart. And so what happens is that she falls in with uh, a a sort of a, a girl gang, three other girls, and together they dropping out of school and they start going to malls and shoplifting and she finds some kind of role, some kind of self-determination. And then the story follows how her character develops, where this all takes her. Now, with that English language title, Girlhood, you immediately think of two things. Firstly, you think of boyhood. And although the, the, the title Girlhood apparently came up before the link later Boyhood, it, it's 
clear that that you know that comparison has to be made because in the case of boyhood one of the key themes of that story is it's a story of a single parent family you know a separated couple who have a young daughter who is trying to find her place in the world the other thing it, it evokes for me at least and i think for british audiences is is um, kidulthood and then later adulthood both written by noel clark the sequel directed by noel clark the first one directed by menage huda which kind of kicked off that wave of um you know gritty streetwise brit picks and i think the film does have a does have resonances with both of those things certainly with the you know with the coming of age story uh which we, we see in, in in boyhood and certainly with the sort of the, the that street level stuff which we see in uh, kid adulthood but it also it's very much its own film it's very much a film that it's to some extent it's the third part of an unintentional trilogy of youth from the director which includes water lilies and uh, and tomboy which are stories about people, you know, rites of passage going from childhood to teenage years to the end of teenage years. I thought it was really terrific. Uh, the casting was done not by going through stage schools and things, but by casting, you know, recruiting people from, you know, malls and uh, train stations and much more sort of street level casting. And what I like about it is, firstly, that it's fantastically not judgmental. You get the sense that although any film which is about gangs or girl gangs or anything, will tie back into a sort of history of teen exploitation films, which can go right back to Nick Ray and Rebel Without a Cause. You never get the sense that there's any kind of judgment or moralising about what's going on. You, you just get the sense that you're getting the portrayal of these characters. The second thing is that although the language of the film, it's a French language film, obviously, but although it's, it seems completely convincing in its verbal language, the, the greatest stuff that it communicates is physical. We open with this... Sort of, it's an American football game that's being played by these young girls wearing this sort of body armor and this kind of very aggressive and warrior stuff. And then immediately afterwards, they're high fiving and, and smiling. And then there's a sequence which a lot of people have talked about when, after going on a on a sort of a robbing spree, they're seen in a hotel room dancing to Rihanna's Diamonds, and the whole song plays out in its entirety. And it's like the film has actually been worked because it's so physical, because so much of it is to do with choreography, because so much of it is to do with what comes across to it through gesture and expression and motion, emotion coming through from uh, motion, that when the film basically tips over into being a musical, it seems completely of a piece. And this sequence, which many people have written about, struck many people, absolutely makes sense. It has much bright... Although we have the ghost of Lyanne in the background, this is a much brighter film, certainly with the, the cinematography's clean, crisp lines, you know... 235 digital imagery but very you know very very sort of you know bold colors and uh, and forthright and yet at the center of it you have this really really you know terrific performance the central character is, is called uh, Marianne and uh, you get this terrific central performance from newcomer character Touré who who absolutely embodies that being on the cusp of you know being a teenager being an adult she's trying to find her place in the world she's tall and yet her expression is kind of downcast and almost as if in expectation of rebuke and during the course of the movie when there are these fades to black in which certain things happen that her character moves on her hairstyle changes her stance changes her manner changes her friends change and we see her going through this sort of period of uh, you know intense turmoil intense change most of which is actually not explained through the dialogue i thought it was 
I thought it was really terrifically well done. I thought you get a sense of these people, you get a sense of their relationships, you get a sense of why, you know, why they're interesting characters. I think that actually the film is, you know, oddly empowering and certainly very sympathetic and made, you can feel a sort of tangible affection for the characters. I, I was really impressed by it. It's called uh, Girlhood. It's already become, you know, something of a sensation in Europe and I, I hope that it does well here because I think it deserves to, I think it was, I thought it was really something. This is sounding to me like a movie of the week. <laughs> I think you can always tell, uh, given the level of enthusiasm. Okay, uh, good. And will that have a good distribution? I hope here, so. Yes. I, I, I you say you hope so. Is that means? Does that mean that it will, or that it you won't? It, it means exactly what I said. I hope so. You're not sure. I'm, it, no, no. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm sure. It, particularly with those kind of releases, depending on how much of an audience for it is, the wider the release goes. I hope it gets a, uh, gets a wide release. It certainly deserves it. Correspondence from Shona Cook. Uh, Has she seen it? B a m a i c a e w and two thousand meter freestyle. But only she says because I lost count of the laps. <laughs> and the supervising teacher forgot to tell me to get out of the pool when I'd done five hundred meters. <laughs> uh, I write to inform you of a new recruit. Uh, my mum. All right. She's just been up for a visit. Your mum. Yeah, no, her mum. No, I know. Not your mum or your mum's <laughs> face. Just your mum, OK? Teenagers, don't you love me? It's just... She'd been up for a visit, and while we did manage to tri- uh, trip to the cinema, over the years I've realised she's more adventurous in her viewing than my dad's more conventional tastes allow. The first inkling was when I took her to see The Brotherhood of the Wolf. I think I, I remember thinking that's a rather fine film. I hadn't sussed it really? out. Really? Yeah. I okay. hadn't sussed it out properly in advance. So the early scene where a peasant girl is smashed against a rock by an unseen monster gave me pause. But Mum grinned cheerily and I relaxed. I thought I might have overstepped again in Stoker, particularly the scene combining a belt and a shotgun. But as the lights rose, she declared, well, that was brilliant. Maps to the Stars was also well received. We didn't make it to force measure, but this time, but I hoped, yes, we did manage Pitch Black for your consideration and Micmacs on the telly box over her state, all of which she enjoyed. What really told me she was ready for wittertainment, however, was her describing a recent coffee morning with friends when they all began discussing how stiff joints and muscle weakness made everyday tasks more weak. More difficult, more, yeah. more, difficult, more difficult, requiring new strategies. They turned to her and asked, how do you get out of your bath? When she told me her reply was, well, you I just get, get out, out of the, the bath. bath. I fired up the laptop and found your latest podcast. She asked me when your show was on and we'll be switching across from her customary Radio 4 to listen. So if you could muster a what's What's up, what's up, Helen, it would terrify the living daylights out of her, but also make her laugh. So thank you very much indeed, Helen. So you've probably switched over from an extraordinary play uh, with top actors in, but I'm (laughs) afraid you've you've made it here, but you're very welcome. And if, if you get out of your bath by just getting out of your bath... You're exactly the kind of listener that we need. Mayweather.bbc.co.uk. We've already had the movie of the week, is what I'm guessing. We'll have a TV movie of the week after the news and sport. What else would you like to tell us about? Shall we do Spooks? Uh, Spooks. Uh, is that the right? spin-off from the, the spin-off successful of, BBC the unbelievably successful yes. BBC TV, TV series. So Spooks the Greater Good. Um, so uh, the story is basically, uh, at the beginning of it, uh, Kit Harrington is Will Holloway. He has been uh, decommissioned uh, from stuff that's gone in the... Fit Kit. Fit Kit. Fit Kit Harrington, yes. Is he actually in, is he, he was never he's in a actually, No, 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 no. So he's been decommissioned. He's called him because um, uh, MI5 loses... They have a terrorist. They're transporting. They lose him. He gets a heist. Uh, and... Uh, so uh, Harry Pierce, Peter Firth, goes off-grid and needs to get in touch with somebody slightly outside of the organisation in order to solve this. Here's a clip. What am I doing here, Harry? 
I need to find someone outside the service that I can trust. It's a short list when you take off the drum of the mad and the dead. It's quite telling the fact that the closest thing I have to a friend is someone who thinks I ruined his life. You're finished. You're coming in. Kasim's escape was sanctioned by someone at the very top of the service. By one of the people who asked you to track me down. That's why I had to disappear. You had Kasim. You let him go. I have no choice. He's our only connection to the traitor. Once he's in the system, he'll be silenced. He's planning an attack. If they can't stop him, it will be on you. This is bigger than Kasim, well. Someone wants to destroy the service itself. You've lost it. <laughs> Ruth's death. Don't. I don't expect you to trust me. Look at it yourself, that's all I'm asking. What do you expect, Harry? Loyalty, gratitude, because you helped my mum with the rent? MI5 was all I had, and you took it from me. The nothing. Hate me all you like, but I think you believe in the service. What it stands for. Just like your father did. You get the general idea. I do, yes. I like Peter Firth. So the film is trying very hard to say, I'm not just a glorified TV show. Um, there's been um, there's been a couple of adverts in the cinema, which are almost the thing about, you know... It, 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 the adverts almost seem to be saying this is a proper film. You need to come to the cinema to see it. I mean, the fact is, when you have any spin-off of a TV show, that's always going to be the, you know, the big thing to overcome. I, you look at all those sort of. I remember you were talking on Radio Two yesterday, some guys from the League of Gentlemen. I was thinking about the League of Gentlemen movie, and I remember being making a very, very cruel comparison with On the Buses or Holiday on the Buses, and you know, so it's he's very, very. Steve always, Pemberton and Reese Shearsmith. Yes, yeah. exactly, and a uh, very good interview, incidentally. Um, so, Thank in you the, very much. So, in the case of this, it's it's fun. It's nonsense. Uh, it's the, the plot has got that kind of Tinker Taylor, twisty, double-crossing, nobody, nobody says what they mean, everybody's hiding something. The action sequences are sort of sub-born, lots of uh, you know, running, shooting, London locations, and um, with a sort of emphasis on the techie surveillance detail. It makes no sense whatsoever. There are times when it appears a bit televisual. There are times when it's kind of, you know, passingly cinematic. It's, it's just OK. It's... it's n- I have to say that it is. There is always the suspicion with any with any of this stuff is that how much can you actually expand this to a you know hundred minute whatever it is a hundred four minute movie, um, but it's kind of fun, kind of made no sense, kind of a little bit sort of cheap and cheerful around the edges, but passing fair, and I enjoyed it whilst I was watching it. Dr. Simon McCormick contributes. Last yep. Thursday I went uh, on my own secret mission and surprised my wife Anne with a visit to a preview screening of Spooks The Greater Good. Oh. I managed to keep it a surprise right up until the opening five seconds of the movie when seeing the style of the first pan shot over London... She went, she that's it. Spooks! Smiles of excitement followed, brownie points scored. We're both big fans of the TV show, having watched it live from the beginning and on box set after that, so we have been looking forward to the film for some time. There's a big butt coming. And ultimately, on a spooks level, they've delivered. Harry is there doing his thing. Doing his thing. Then there's a thing which has been redacted, (laughs) presumably, concerning concerning that guy. And the thing. He's in the trailer, but anyway... But I did feel a bit empty at the end. Even the final twist was something any spooks watcher would have guessed and seen done before on the TV series. You see, there really isn't anything cinematic about this film. It could just as easily have been a spooks Christmas special or a DVD release. Getting fit kit doesn't make it a movie. To even mention it in the same sentence as Bond or Born, as some have, is frankly ridiculous and possibly missing the point. Spooks has always been a brilliant, well-scripted, well-acted TV show often with a sense of claustrophobia, and unfortunately, this hasn't translated well onto the big screen. Sad but true, angry, not angry, just disappointed. Disappointed, yeah. 
Cinematic. That's kind of cinematic. fair. That's what it boils well, down as I to. said, there are times when it definitely feels televisual. You, you feel like they're trying very hard for that not to be the case, but there are times. But yeah, it, was, it was kind of. Hey, look, it's kind of okay. A, a query just before news mm-hmm. uh, from Liam he says, "My twelve-year-old. We, we've already talked about unfriended on, on the program, but Liam says my twelve-year-old daughter Maisie, thirteen soon, but twelve at the moment. Yes, is quite active on social media. Is very interested in seeing unfriended." She watches, for instance, Pretty Little Liars and has watched one or two horror films and admitted to me, after, she admitted to me afterwards. She's quite mature, so I'm tempted to, let, to take her to see the film. It's but a 15. A, it's a 15, uh, Liam, so what are you thinking about? Would appreciate your view on is the film too adult given what I've said about her? Well, apart from the fact she's 12 and it's a 15. Yeah, it's a 15. There you go. I'm I'm sorry, but it's a fifteen. So, I mean, you know, I do understand that people sneak into movies underage, but I'm not going to sit here and go, yeah, you know, yeah, fine. Liam, I think you're being told. Uh, well, I, I, I did. I told there was, a, there was a, my my father took me to see all the president's men when I was twelve. And that was a fourteen. It was double, your Nixon fixation. It was a, yeah, began. it was a double A certificate thing. But he had this thing that he wouldn't he wouldn't lie. To them, he would just so when they when they went up to the thing, they, he went two tickets for the things. Me and my sister, and he said, um, the other person said, "Are they both 14? And my dad just gestured towards us. He didn't actually say yes, they are. He just gestured towards us, and that was the way he kind of morally reconciled it. But that was a slightly different matter. So anyway, so uh, so Maisie Delahunty, who is 13 soon, isn't he still even? It's a 15 close. certificate, and is it appropriately certificated? Yes. Liam, we're happy to have helped uh, in your parenting, parenting dilemma. Or not helped, I'm sorry, but there we are. Uh, Mayor at bbc.co.uk, 8505. If you've got any other cinematic-based parenting dilemmas, I'm sure... We'll uh, sort them we'll all out. We'll sort it out. Uh, Liam, who's the dad of Maisie, who's 12, but nearly 13. Yes, there was a, yeah, we had it immediately. Uh, yes, go on. Thanks for reading my note out and for the parenting advice. She'll have to wait for the DVD. She's very sad. I mean, um, it... it, 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 it I understand that it is one of the um, it is one of the rites of passage, which is you know what we used to what we used to call sneaking in the movies, but it's actually not probably not called that anymore. Bunking in the movies, or you know when you when you go and see a movie uh, that in which you you have to look older than you are. For me, the defining moment was and I've talked about this before was uh, going to see Mel Brooks's Blazing Saddles. Sure, won't stop you from telling us another amusing anecdote. What was the first film that you were too young to see that you went in to see in a cinema? See, the th- the reason it's all different now is that there is, you know, nowadays. Because of because of the way that video and streaming and everything works, it's much easier to see stuff that's classified for an audience that for, you know that is older than you are. When you actually had, I mean, this funnily enough, this relates to something that, that former chief censor James Furman always said. James Furman's whole thing about video, about why it was in the Video Recordings Act, bear with me because this is interesting, in the Video Recordings Act, in the rubric of the Video Recordings Act, it essentially said that video should be judged more harshly than cinema films. And the reason was, there was this, this, this phrase, with special regard to viewing in the home. And what, what, what that phrase meant was, we understand that when it comes to viewing in the home, films are accessed by people who wouldn't actually access them if you had what Furman used to refer to as the gatekeeper, meaning the manager of the cinema who would famously stand there and go, you're not 14. You're not 18. No, you can't go in to see Bruce Lee in, uh, uh, you know, whichever kung fu movie it was at the time because you are clearly 11 years old. So I remember going to see Blazing Saddles and doing that thing about putting a newspaper or tissues in, in, in the, the heels of my shoes in order to appear taller to go and see it at the Classic in Hendon. Do you think someone would actually stand uh, at the gates of Liam's nearest cinema and go, are you Maisie Delahunty? We know you're we know 12. You, we know you're 12. Get that's, out. That's not good. <laughs> that was...
That was a very Ray Winston thing. Shut it. Remember when Ray Winston used to... You're in my chair. Ray Winston used to do that advert for why it was that you had to go to the cinema to see a film. Do you remember that? I come to the cinema... shut your face. ...for the gangsters, for the romance, for the... It would be Ray Winston, but he'd actually be the guy thinking, you're amazing, you're only 12 years old, you're not even 13, you can't come in here. Now, I told you uh, a while back about... uh, uh, a celebrity steam room moment that I had with Justin Bieber. I beg your pardon? I had a celebrity steam room moment a few, uh, uh, quite a few months ago uh, with Justin Bieber. Did I tell you about that? Oh, yes, no, that's right. You, you went into, you were, you were in a steam room. It wasn't a celebrity steam room. You were in a steam room. No, there isn't. A, it's not. It's not a special <laughs> No, London I'm sorry. It was like, privilege. I thought, is that a Channel 4 programme, celebrity steam room? <laughs> well, it you were in a steam room and Justin Bieber was there, but he was bossing his yeah, mind he was, around. Yeah, he was shouting Anyway, yeah, this morning I had another celebrity steam room moment. Which was? In the, in this... It does, actually, now you say it does make it sound as though there's a steam room for celebrities. For the celebrities. Okay, go on, which, is the a, which sounds a lot rougher than it was supposed to sound. <laughs> anyway, so I was just sitting there. Minding my, my own business. Minding my own business. It's a small steam room, but it was very, very... I used to, it's very steamy in there. Yeah. Okay. That's a steam room. And That's the door how opens, it works. The door is some, some other geezer comes in and sits down. I say, hello. He says, hello. So he sits in the corner. Anyway, I'm almost cooked at this point, so I think... You can't leave straight away because that implies that you're embarrassed or something and, or that you're a bit feeble. <laughs> so I yeah, gave it about tough enough. 90 seconds, two minutes, and then I, and then I left. And, then I, and as I left, I thought, that, that guy in there reminds me a bit of Benedict Cumberbatch. The Benedict Cumberbatch. There aren't many. So was it Benedict Cumberbatch? It was. Yes. So you were in a steam room with Benedict Cumberbatch. Well, he came out afterwards. That's a tabloid story. He came out afterwards and said, all right, Simon. I said, oh, well, he said it was me. Oh, right, yeah, sorry. It was very steamy. Very good. Did you get him to come on the show? We talked about various things. But not that. I thought it would be a little inappropriate. To be but this must honest. be this must be some sort of very very elite place well, that no, you go not really. to. It's geographically convenient. Okay, right. So it's North London in that case. Anyway, okay. Is it, it, up, was, is it up Primrose Hill way? He was he was as delightful as 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 you would imagine him to be. Uh, and yeah, and no, I'm not going to say. Uh, no, I think you probably absolutely. If you ever want membership, by the way, to the Celebrity Steam Room, I can probably I can probably get you in. I'm not entirely sure that I do. No. It's, I think it, I think it's better just hearing the stories from you of saying I went to the Steam Room and I came back and Justin Bieber was shouting at his minder because somebody hadn't bought him a four by four. That's the or, way it goes. or something. TV movie of the week. Um, <clears throat> actually, Benedict, this weird studio that we're in in Westminster, Benedict Cumberbatch sat in that very seat uh, talking about Amazing Grace. Oh, oh, he playing did. The role that's of right. William that's Pitt right. Yes. And was delightful and charming. Yeah, he was very good. Uh, yeah. So, uh, so Rob Q uh, says, "I'm going to go for the Passenger as one to watch, as I haven't seen that before. Although for a rewatch, it'll be killing me softly. But I think Mark is going to go for the Lair. Killing of... them softly. Killing me softly. Killing so. them softly. I'm just telling you what Rob says. All right. Killing me softly. The two different a, films. Is, I know it's a song, but he's obviously gotten confused. Okay. But I'm just passing Fine. it. On, okay. Right. No, I'm just. I Mark's going to go. I'm just. You know, carry on. For the lair of the white worm, for yeah, two reasons. you can never have too much Ken Russell. It's Ken Russell, and it's on at Stupid O'Clock on the Horror Channel. Yeah. Uh, Andy Scott is going to, I think, Prometheus, the best of the alien films, said no one ever. Can I, can I just say, I watched Prometheus again, literally two days ago. Literally, literally two days ago. Was it ago. specifically It was two literally days. Two, days two days ago. And I, I sat there, sorry, before you carry on, so I sat everyone down to watch it, because I was the only person in the family who'd watched it. 
and and I, and I had I had always said that when you know when Prometheus went from being the most exciting to the most disappointing movie of the year in the course of its opening weekend, and I said actually the whole problem with it was it was to do with people's expectations. It was it was all to do with the hype, the fact that you'd seen so much of the movie that Empire had you know done huge spreads and that there'd been all the stuff on the television. And and when I saw it, I thought actually you know it's fine. It's 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 not bad. It's got problems, but it's not bad. It's not without flaws, as we said before. But it's not bad. It's flawed then. then. Yes, it has some flaws. It has some flaws. Yes. And so anyway, so I sat down then with the family to watch Prometheus on Blu-ray it is a bit rubbish I have to say going around to seeing it, seeing it again I'd forgotten just how unbelievably creaky some of the dialogue I mean it looks beautiful but some of the dialogue is really really terrible and there are moments when they're running away from the ship which is falling in a straight which is going just run to the side just run to the side. It's just, it's, anyway, sorry. So I, w- I was surprised. I thought what would happen was that the reassessment would have actually taken up. Everybody go, actually, yeah, why did that film get such a hard time? The only thing that I can actually, that instantly came to mind is the waterfall and the guy jumping off. At the very beginning? Yes. You don't remember anything else? You don't no, remember I, the huge big head? You don't remember the eggs? You don't remember the snake-like tentacle things? You don't remember the caesarean scene? You don't remember all that stuff with Numi Rapace talking about God? You don't remember any of that? Athena, uh, Apparently not. So. says, uh, Mark's going to choose Went the Day Well, essential viewing for those who've never seen it. Chilling depiction of a Nazi invasion, aided by Little England collaborators, written by Graham Greene. Made whilst World War II was still going on. Remarkable ending. Bill Picard says, I think it's going to be swingers. Just remind Mark that Vince Vaughan was once good. And Reese Griffiths, I think he's going to go for Carry On Screaming. A vintage carry on always makes me chuckle. A bit of light relief with all this heavy politics. Not today, Reese. That'll be tomorrow. There's so much to choose from. Carry On Screaming is an absolutely brilliant choice. Vanilla Fielding is terrific. That thing about, you know, do you mind if I smoke? And shh. And I, there was the one that I'm surprised nobody did somebody mention Day the Earth Stood Still? Because I was really swithering about doing that, partly because, you know, incredibly interesting musical score and, uh, you know, fascinating. But I'm going to go for Swingers. And I'm going to go for Swingers for exactly the reason that uh, that email had pointed out, which was. When you look at Swingers now and you look at what happened to the two main guys, but well, the three main guys, because Doug Lehman went on to, you know, to be a big film and all the rest of it. But when you look at this is a film with Vince Vaughn and John Favreau, John Favreau wrote the script and Vince and, and so much promise, so much charm, so much wit, so much fun. And I know that for ages and ages, I ended up saying, I've got another Vince Vaughn you know, film. Do we all remember how good he once used to be in Swingers and how is it that the guy who went from Swingers? Swingers is still a really good film. So as a kind of, as an antidote, as a, a to, to wash away the memory of years and years of absolutely unwatchable Vince Vaughn films, which I kind of file along, alongside the Adam Sandler stuff now. Swingers, it's so money. As they keep saying, you're so money. You're so money. And lo- well, just what lovely... What do they mean by that? They mean, you know, you're cool. You're on the, mo- you're on the money. On you're the so, money. But it's just... It's re- and, of course, John Favreau... You know, when Iron Man, you know, big sort of special effects action director. So it is extraordinary when you see, you know, Doug and John Favreau, Vince Vaughn, Heather Graham. I mean, a huge sum of talent, all of whom went on to very different things. It just happens that one of them was Vince Vaughn, who went on to be Vince Vaughn, which of all the things you could go on to be is probably the least exciting. Jude Mundy yes. is in Stafford. My dad, who's a reverend, decided to take me to see Starship Troopers when I was too young. How, how young is two? Because Star, Starship Troopers we did as a, as a, as a film. It was a fifteen, but it was a that was a fifteen borderline eighteen in terms of the sort of gore. I think um, after making me promise that after watching it I wouldn't turn into a psychopathic alien bug. <laughs> when asked at the cinema if I was too young, his resp- so this is touching into yeah. your dad's story. I think. Yeah. When asked at the cinema if I was too young, his response was to shrug and say, "She's short for her age." Very good. This was true. Yeah, which is fine, which is a way of... This is quite interesting. There are phrases that you can say which aren't lying, 
which yeah. which get you through. Yeah, or in, in my dad's case, you can just gesture, so you're not. I was grateful. Words. Yes, they so are. I was grateful, as his plan B for sneaking me in was to wear his dog collar uh, to engender trust. Anyway, do you have an area of the Wittertainment Church for parents of small children who resort to bribing their children with food so they can listen to your program? You can have any of it, but I must. Say, if there are any other phrases which parents have used to get yes. their children in. Which aren't, which isn't lying. It's not lying. It's just misdi- not. Maybe it's, it's misdirection. It's, it's misdirection. It's misleading. It depends what your definition of is is. Mayor at bbc.co.uk. A couple of films to do can before I do, we finish. Can we go do Age of Adeline? So you've probably. Yes, can I do Age of Adeline? You can do whatever you want. Okay, so Age of Adeline, you've probably seen the posters uh, for this uh, up around uh, the tube stations and things whenever you're going on the train when you're going off to your celebrity gym. Celebrity steam room. So the story. That's, that is a chat show. It is a chat show idea right there. Yeah. And uh, can I just say that I said it first in the same way that I said Dialight Twinosaur. So essentially the best way of describing Age of Adeline is it's kind of like the conceit, the conceit of the curious case of Benjamin Button and that sort of literary longing of time traveller's wife and the silliness of the lake house. So the story is um, Age of Adeline, and it turns out that the, the, the title itself is a pun. Adeline uh, is 29. At the beginning of the film, we see her getting a fake ID, and the guy says, well, you know, why, why, why do you always say 29? Because, you know, you, you could pass for younger than that. Why don't you just knock a few years off? She says, 29 is fine. And then uh, we sort of flash back, and it turns out that she's been 29 for a long time. It's like that moment in um, Let the Right One In, when he says, how old are you? And she says, I'm 13, but I've been 13 for a very long time. So there's a sort of vampire thing going on. And a voiceover explains that way, way back, she was involved in an accident. During the course of the accident, she the, she was in a car, car fell, snow, car fell, fell, car... <laughs> Tommy, Tommy, I'm like Tommy Cooper. Car, snow, snow fell. Car fell into freezing cold water. Body went down to a low body temperature. So everything went into stasis, struck by lightning... This stopped her ageing cells Does happening. It? And it, no, no, it doesn't. And it says this is something that will be discovered by science in 2035. Okay? So therefore, she's, she's 29 forever. And then what happens is something which is not completely disconnected from the twilight romance thing, which is that, oh, it's fabulous, the idea of being young forever. But, of course, actually the problem is that you outlive everybody and you don't fit in with the human world. So she then has to spend the rest of her life regularly, every 10 years or so, moving, changing her identity, essentially not having any binding relationships with anybody because she's not going grown. She doesn't want to become a medical curiosity. She doesn't want to be somebody who stands out. She wants to blend in with the rest of the crowd. But if you stay with her for any more than 10 years, you notice that she isn't ageing. She has a daughter. The daughter, of course, at the beginning of it, is younger than her. But during the course of the movie, the daughter becomes older than her. And the older daughter is played by Ellen Burstyn, who is one of the very, very best things in the film. Anyway, so she is trying to keep, to, to, you know, to, to, to stay away, to keep everybody away from her, to sort of keep all emotional barriers down. And then there is a particularly hunky philanthropist who just will not take no for an answer. And she wonders whether maybe for the first time she's starting to melt. The ice queen is starting to melt. And her daughter thinks this is a very good idea. Here's a clip. What's wrong? I'm just tired of running, of lying to good people. Then stop. Nobody's chasing you anymore. Anyone who is ever suspicious is long dead. You don't have to be alone forever. Don't you miss having someone to love? It's been such a long time. Well, it's not the same when there's no future. What are you talking about? You got nothing but future. I mean a future together, growing old together. (laughs) Without that love is, um, it's just heartbreak. 
So you get a, a sense from that and the kind of that you know, sensitive piano thing going on in the background. It's that kind of film. OK. And on one level, it is preposterous. And certainly in the screening that I was in, when they did the, the, the deadpan scientific voiceover explanation of the falling in the water and the getting struck by lightning, everyone laughed. And I, I think that it's done in a no, that stuff is done in a knowingly deadpan way. But like any genre thing, like, you know, say they're vampires. Why? Well, they were bitten by another vampire. OK, fine. You just accept this is the thing. And the curious case of Benjamin Button, living his life backwards. Really? OK, fine. We just accept that this is a thing. Time traveller's wife. What's the thing? Well, he, tra- he travels in time. Oh, OK, well, we just accept that this is the thing. So actually, maybe one of the missteps was even trying to explain why it is that she's just the same age forever and ever and ever. But within that sort of, you know, foolish conceit, and I use the word foolish as in these foolish things sort of thing, I found myself rather charmed by it. Not because, the, I mean, funnily enough, the central couple, Blake Lively is the, is, 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 is the, 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 the main, the Adline character, although she's called lots of different things during the course of the movie. And uh, Mikhail Hussman is, the, is Ellis, who's the guy who's a full story. Actually, they're a little bit bland and, I'm not, and I don't particularly buy their relationship. But Ellen Burstyn is terrific as the daughter. And Harrison Ford is really, really good as her paramour's really? father. Yeah. And so what... Yeah, exactly. And so what you get is this thing, which is this sort of fanciful, you know, kind of Nick Sparksy type, uh, you know, romance. With I've all never that seen a Nick Sparks movie. I need to... I can't believe I, you've never seen one. I have never seen one. So okay. I need to see one very quickly because I, I don't get half this stuff. I will... I, I've got... What's the best Nick Sparks movie I can go and oh, see? Oh, off the top of my head... Uh, best to me, maybe. Um, let me just, uh, let, let me have a, let me have a look and see which ones I've got. They're all basically the same. Anyway, can I finish reviewing this? Yes, one? yes. So you've got, you know, it's a foolish conceit, but romantic conceit that kind of works rather well. This sentimental, tinkly, tonkly piano score going on in the background. A, a central couple in whom I'm not overly interested, falling over into balance. But then. Ellen Burstyn, who, of course, was absolutely brilliant in Interstellar. When you see Interstellar again, I mean, Ellen Burstyn is only in it very fleetingly, but she's terrific. And in the case of this, the scenes with her and Blake Lively are terrific. And Harrison Ford does some of the best work he's done in age because you suddenly remember that when cast in a role that in which he's a sort of slightly... he, he, He plays Thunderstruck rather well. And uh, and he does it rather well. So so all the stuff that's sort of missing from the core of the film is filled in enough by the peripheral players, by the older peripheral players. And I went with it. I mean, I even in the, even in the, the screening room which I was in, in which there was there was titters and there was giggles. And when and, and were they just a couple of your reviewing? Chums? They were. Yes, they were. They were. I I kind of I found myself. I found because I like that idea. I like the vampire idea. I like the thing. I also like a movie which tells you the idea that somehow the inability to grow old is a bad thing. And wouldn't it be nice to be able to get a bit ageing? So if you're wondering why we're here, uh, we should be on on a Friday, obviously, uh, which is where we'd normally be. But there'll be a lot of uh, election results to bring you this time tomorrow. The podcast will be available very shortly. If you missed our John Stewart interview, that'll be uh, on there. And if this time tomorrow you're thinking, I could do with some wittertainment, there's a thing which is not wittertainment television, but it's sort of like that. It's like a, the, the, the show that we did last week, but with added pictures. So, yeah. the, so uh, this is going to be available from around about mid-afternoon tomorrow it's going to be on the five live website it's going to be on our youtube channel if you keep an eye on the five live website and the wittertainment twitter feed we'll tell you when it's going to be there mark and i doing the program kerry mulligan uh, is on it talking yes. far from the manning crowd she's the best thing uh she's certainly 
Yes, I think she's the best thing. Uh, and a couple of brand new features, which we mentioned last week, summed up in a selfie and lo- lobby correspondence. Anyway, so it's like a TV version of this very thing. Uh, so if you keep an eye uh, on the website and on our Twitter feed, we'll tell you when that's there and then you can yep. watch it. And if enough of you watch it, then maybe we can do it on a regular basis. So tell all your friends and watch it a hundred times. Watch early, watch often. That's what I'm saying. Have we got time for something can else? I very quickly do Stray Dogs, which is... Um, sorry, can you make it last two minutes? Uh, I'll do as fast as I can if you stop interrupting me. Um, 2013... Two uh, minutes and 15. Thank you. you uh, Venice Grand Jury Prize winner from Tsai Ming Liang. And this is one of those films that requires a tolerance. Slow cinema is, for some people, an acquired taste. This is essentially a story of people living on the margins of life around Taipei. The central character is a father who spends his days as an incredibly bedraggled human billboard. He has two unbelievably resilient children who we see walking through supermarkets, um, you know, looking for food, trying to eke out an existence. And the film plays all its scenes out in increasingly lengthy takes. It is a film which asks you to be patient. In fact, the director himself has said that he does not expect the patronage of cinema audiences, which in a way can either be seen as, you know, something which... It's a film, when it played at Venice, there were some people who said, this is, you know, okay, really. And there is is certainly no sense that what this is going to do is to bring a whole new audience to, uh, to the director. But what... And certainly whilst watching it, I mean, there are things like there is a 10 minute sequence in which we see our uh, our bedraggled anti-hero uh, talking to, caressing, eating, smothering a cabbage. There is a section which is the best part of 12, 15 minutes long in which two characters stare at a mural on a wall. There, I mean, nothing happens. We, this is slow cinema. At its, and certainly there are times in it in which you do feel like, OK, this is really taking quite a lot of effort. But... Even having said that, and having said that it is essentially inaccessible and it is definitely playing to a small parish and playing to it, it has astonishing images in it. I mean, there are things in it that will not leave my mind. So this incredibly bleak rainscape of a world, this extraordinary sort of uh, land of concrete and vegetation, the, the ravaged face of the central character as he sings folk songs to himself while the rain beats in his face as he stands in the middle of the traffic holding a billboard. These two children wandering the brightly lit corridors of this massive supermarket in a somehow kind of resilient state despite the abject poverty. And then as we move into the second half of the movie, it's almost strange ghost house thing going on in which they're in an abandoned tenement, abandoned building that appears to be falling down. And they ask, why is it that the, that, that the stuff is coming off the walls? And they're told by this woman who may or may not be a maternal figure that the building is weeping. It's a film that requires a lot of patience. Yes. And I'm not sure that I had enough patience for it, but there were things in it that I won't forget. Movie of the week. Girlhood. Uh, this has been a Something Else production for BBC Radio 5 Live. The podcast will be available shortly. Look out for that thing with pictures uh, tomorrow. Next week on the programme, we're going to have Emily Watson. Wow. Uh, which is good. This is not Emma Watson, just to be No, no, clear. I know. I know who Emily Watson is. Yeah, Emily Watson will be on the show. Well, that was the show. It was. Yeah. Yeah. And what do you think? I thought it was very good, but I think we managed to review eight films and a TV movie of the week. I'm very pleased about that. Phoebe Todd has been on just before we finish. This isn't going to be very long. We're going to be virtually done and dusted because I've got a taxi bike. You've got a taxi bike because we're in the wrong place. You need to be somewhere else. Dear Edward and Bella, on your last podcast, you mentioned the possible addition of a teenage slump zone to your church. Yes. Like many of the adolescent wittertainees, I've been recently converted by my parent. Uh, which has led to me binge listening to your more recent podcast. Binge listening, that's a great phrase. However, as an A-level student, free time is a glorious memory, and instead, most of my waking hours are spent on art coursework. 
Mark declared that mobile phones are banned from the slump zone, but is homework allowed? Your podcasts have gotten me through many of my 11-hour drawing sessions, so consider whether this habit could be continued um, at church. Well done for use of the word gotten. Happens a lot these days. Oh, does it? Yeah, is homework allowed in the uh, slump yeah, zone? So, yeah. Slump zone. And could you both wish me a happy 17th birthday for Sunday, the day before my happy hellish exam starts? Oh, Thanks Bonnie. for that, Mum. Happy, uh, happy birthday. Happy that exam is. time. Well, I've got to get on a bike now. Are you walking? You're going to walk back somewhere, haven't you? Because you haven't got a taxi bike waiting to zoom you in a showbiz way. No, I'm not going to be... I've got leathers to don now. <laughs> and then some... And then, and then you're off to your celebrity <laughs> steam room for more hanging out with Benedict yeah, Cumberbatch and his celebrity pals. I'm going to scythe, do some scythe yeah, in the Dorset way. All right. Uh, thank you very much. Don't forget about the thing tomorrow. Uh, next week, we're but back on Friday. Others, yes. Are we? Yeah, it's Friday. Are we back in the normal studio? But if you're a podcast here, then you don't really, you don't really care when we're on. Anyway, shutting down. On digital and online. This is BBC Radio 5 Live. bbc.co.uk slash 5 Live.